Uh, after the kids talk, Mathia leant over and said in my ear, there's no way you're topping that one, Kevin. <laughs> so thank you for that kids talk. It really was wonderful and superb. Uh, and it really is a privilege to be opening up this part of the Bible with you all this morning. Sometimes we can overstate how life-changing an event can be. Uh, just last year, a student came up to me and said, Kevin, Kevin, I've discovered something that's completely flipped my life around. I've discovered this thing called a diary. Uh, I can say with much confidence that really his life didn't change at all. It was the same before and it was the same afterwards. He was just as disorganized as it was before. Sometimes, though, it can be really significant. Another student came up to me and said, uh, actually, it was only at the beginning of this year, he had this life-changing moment where in the lowest of lows, with all the relational trouble he felt in his life, God really spoke to him. And from that moment, he started going back to church and engaging with Christianity once again. So sometimes it could be nothing, sometimes it could be everything. Uh, Martin Seligman is the founder of Positive Psychology. Uh, he describes an epiphany he had. Uh, he was in the garden, taking out some weeds, and his five-year-old daughter came up to him and said this. It's going to come up on the slides. She said, Daddy, on my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. Uh, that was the hardest thing I've ever done, and I haven't whined since. And if I could stop whining, you can stop being so grumpy. Uh, if you have a five-year-old daughter, uh, you might be able to relate to this. It's frustrating when kids are right. And for him, he would say his daughter was right. That for the first 50 years of his life, he was grumpy. That he needed to change. But what it did was that it actually changed not just his life and his attitude, but also his research. And it pioneered a branch of psychology called positive psychology. It influenced things from well-being to mindfulness. Things like life coaching. Things like educational models that encourage students' strengths rather than their weaknesses. They have a foundation in some of Seligman's theories. That it was, he had an experience, an epiphany, this thought and a new idea that changed his life around and had a ripple effect into all of society. This morning, we'll be looking at a life-changing event. Actually, I, argue, I would argue that we'll be looking at one of the most significant moments in world history. That is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It's significant because he ended up writing about half of the New Testament. Martin Luther helped birth the Reformation. What was the starting point that triggered this? His conversion as he lectured on one of Paul's letters, the letters of the book of Romans. Martin Luther King Jr., centuries later, paralleled his work to Paul's ministry. Uh, a few months before his I Have a Dream speech while in prison, he wrote this. Just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my hometown. He likened and took inspiration from the Apostle Paul. Tom Holland, uh, for those who are fans of Marvel, not the Spider-Man actor, but he's actually an atheist historian at Buckingham University. And he says this about Paul's letters. 
he says that they are the most influential, the most transformative, the most revolutionary ever written. Across the millennia and in societies and continents unimagined by Paul himself, their impact would reverberate. That is, the influence of the Apostle Paul has shaped Western civilization. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's life-changing moment, his epiphany. Uh, And as we read these events this morning, it's events that have shaped the world that we live in. Uh, Before we dive in, it's good to be orientated once again to where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 8 gives you the purpose of the book, if you like. That is, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, says to his disciples that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen movement in the Gospels so far. We've seen movement from Jerusalem to the regions of Judea and Samaria, but not yet beyond that. And so just have a glance over in your Bibles, have it open to chapter 8. Uh, this came up in the kids' talk, chapter 8, verse 1. We're first introduced there to the Apostle Paul, called Saul before his conversion. 8, verse 1, Saul approves of the execution of Stephen. And to orientate us, let me read the rest of the verse. And on that great day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That is, persecution meant that there was a movement of Christians outwards from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria. And what was Paul doing? Verse 3, 8 verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. That is, in chapter 8, he's an enemy of God and he's an enemy of the early church. But in chapter 9, his life will be flipped upside down. And so as we come to chapter 9, we have two broad themes that we're going to look at this morning. That is salvation and suffering. Uh, So firstly, salvation. Here we have Saul's Damascus Road experience. But unlike Seligman, it's not an idea that grips him. It's not an idea that revolutionizes his worldview. But it's actually not a concept, but rather a person he encounters the person of Jesus. He begins a chapter no different to what he was like in chapter 8. He goes to Damascus with the intention of imprisoning Christians. But in verse 3, we have the moment where he meets Jesus. A light flashes around him. Uh, Like everyone who finds themselves before God, he falls to the ground and a voice sounds out. Verse 4, have a look. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And as Jesus enters Saul's life, he takes the man that was going in one direction, and he stops this persecutor in his tracks. But he doesn't just stop him. Saul's as he opens his eyes, discovers that he's blinded. That is, he's actually brought utterly to his knees. He's completely dependent on God and what God will do next. The story moves on. In contrast to the blindness of Saul, another disciple has a vision. 
Jesus reveals himself to Ananias. Uh, no one wants to help an enemy. Just even yesterday, two of my nephews were having a fight. Uh, the youngest one was coming first in Mario Kart and was 15 meters from crossing the light, and the oldest one decided to stop the game and quit. And let's just say they didn't talk for the next five minutes. You don't want to help someone who annoys you, who irritates you, let alone someone who is your enemy. But that's exactly what God asks of Ananias. Verse 11, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus called Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sights. Ananias objects, but verse 15, we're told the purpose of these events. That is, God's plan was not just to stop the persecution of Christians. His plan was far greater. His plan was to turn the hunter into the hunted, the persecutor into the the persecuted. Verse 15, have a look. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name of the Gentiles and the kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That is, God chooses the most unlikeliest person the one who persecuted the church, the one who was as Jewish as they come. And he doesn't just take him from hell to heaven, but he uses the most Jewish person to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Salvation to even Saul and salvation to others through Saul. Uh, One thing we have to keep asking as we read the Bible is, uh, why is this passage situated here? Why is chapter 9 of Acts placed in this part of the Bible? That is, the Bible is history. It records real events, real places, real things that happen. You see it here. Uh, There's details that in one sense add nothing to the narrative, but they're here because it's part of what happened. So just let me give you an example. Verse 12, the house of Judas was on Straight Street. Does it matter that The house of Judas was on Straight Street. In one sense, it could have been on a crooked street, or it could have been on Balaclava Road. In one sense, it's an irrelevancy. Uh, It doesn't actually add anything to the narrative, but it's there because the Bible is history. So it's recorded there. But the Bible isn't just history. It's also a piece of literature. It's been carefully compiled and arranged to teach us something. And so one thing to ask is, why is the conversion of Saul situated here in chapter 9? Just in chapter 8, we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch being saved. At the end of this chapter, all of chapter 10, the focus switches back to Peter. Saul isn't actually mentioned again until chapter 11. But the author has chosen to place this episode here and not later. Why? Uh, One thing we do at ANU is we often get people to talk to the people around them. And it's just a way for us to say, you have minds that God has given you to wrestle with Scripture yourself. And so let's work at this together. So I thought I might just try this with you guys and see how it goes. Maybe for the next two or three minutes, talk to the people around you and ask uh, one another this question, which is this. Uh, uh, It's going to come up on the screen. Uh, How does the conversion of Saul in chapter 9 connect with chapters 8 
and 10, okay? It doesn't matter if you don't have an English literature degree, we have engineers at ANU as well, and it's just a way to say God has given you minds. It could be things like contrast. It could be things like uh, it's just leading up to something. It could be that it's just purely chronological, but just have a talk to the people around you. How does the conversion of Saul in chapter nine connect with chapters eight to 10, okay? Two minutes. That's two minutes. And let's be brave together. I'm hearing some good answers from amongst the crowd. But let's just hear from a few brave souls. Put your hands up. Maybe shout out um, what your group has come up with. Oh, uh, maybe uh, put your hands up and shout out uh, what your group came up with. Uh, or if uh, you're a bit nervous, maybe say what your friend came up with. And dob them in instead. That always works. <laughs> yep, at the back. You got no idea? <laughs> Hands up if you have no idea. No? Okay, a few? Possibly, yep. Other ideas? Yep, at the front here. Yeah, that's really insightful. So we have a Gentile thing happening here with Saul. And in chapter 8, an Ethiopian was converted. That's really helpful. Any other ideas? Bit of a tricky one. We've got our famous kids talk speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've already mentioned chapter eight, Saul with the moving and the persecution. But in chapter ten, it's the groups that anyone from anywhere can be accepted. So it's not just you've got to be born in the right country. So so if anyone from anywhere can be that's great. Did you all hear that? No. I could sit, oh, oh, there you go. Um, I think I could just possibly sit down. Let me summarize that. That was really helpful and really insightful. Um, in chapter 8, it's that idea of a movement. 
Okay, in chapter 8, the gospel goes to Samaria. Hundreds of years of hostility and hatred had to be overcome as the Samarians came to believe. Okay, so the gospel's going out. And in chapter 10, something momentous happens. It's a pivotal moment in Acts. That is, the Gentiles, non-Jews, come to believe. And it's exactly right. It doesn't matter where you're born, who you are. Even Saul can be saved. Even the Gentiles can be saved. You see it with Cornelius, a centurion. And just flick over, chapter 10, verse 44. Have a look. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, chapter 9 is situated here to prepare us for the momentous event that will happen in chapter 10. For if God can save Saul, a persecutor of the church, as Paul himself says elsewhere, the worst of sinners, then God can save even the Gentile. That is, salvation is for everyone. It's for Saul, the enemy. It's for the Gentile, the one who has no right to be counted as God's people. And it's for you, and it's for me. And what we learn is that there is nothing you have done or can do that's too evil for God. Have you stood there and approved of the murder of someone else? Saul did in chapter 8. And if the sins of Saul can be forgiven, then your sins can be forgiven. But following Jesus will involve suffering. And that's our second point today. Suffering. God will not only use Saul to take the gospel to the nations, but verse 16 in chapter 9, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Immediately we see change in Saul's life. Verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished. Now, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call his name? Yet not long after, suffering comes. And the Jews whom Saul used to identify with, they, they actually seek to kill him. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. We see it time and time again in Acts that with salvation follows suffering. Uh, you see it again a few verses later. They helped escape, uh, Saul escape Damascus. He travels to Jerusalem. In verse 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. That is, suffering is the path of the believer. The message that Jesus is Lord over your life is offensive. 
The message that there is nothing you can do to be saved, but like Saul, you need to utterly rely on God. That's offensive. It pushes against all notions of human achievement. It says, I'm not good enough. It says that Jesus is the king of my life. And so when we speak of the good news of Jesus, it will involve suffering. But in Acts, it's worth it. For that's how the gospel grows. In chapter 8, how did the church grow from just Jerusalem to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria? Well, in 8.1, it was through persecution. The Jerusalem church was scattered. And here in 9.31, we see fruit from that scattering. For the believers, when they scatter, they bring the good news of Jesus with them. In 9.31, when the persecution stops, there's a time of peace, the believers are strengthened, and they grow in numbers. Suffering accelerates the gospel going out. We actually see a hint of it with Saul in verse 30. For where is Saul sent to escape? It's to a place called Tarsus. I've got here a map. And if you look at the very top, there's Tarsus. And what do you notice about Tarsus? Well, it's not in Israel. It's in Gentile territory. The gospel is going out to the Gentiles, even through the suffering of Saul. But you'll get to that in future weeks. Uh, Let's get to the uh, end of the chapter. The scene shifts. Uh, The camera pans from Saul back to the Apostle Peter in verse 32. And we finish with this section that helps prepare us for what will happen further in chapter 10. There's multiple healings. Uh, He heals a man named Ananias. People turn to the Lord. He goes to Joppa. There's a disciple named Tabitha. And here we have a healing that's supposed to remind us of one of Jesus' own healings. Uh, Peter enters a room. He asks everyone to leave. He says to Tabitha, verse 40, Tabitha, get up. And it's supposed to remind us of one of Jesus' own healings in his own life and ministry, which is in Mark 5, 41. There, Jesus enters a room. He says to a girl, Talitha Kum, which says, I say to you, get up. And the name Tabitha, for us, is meant to allude and make us think of that healing, Talitha Kum. That is, there are parallels. We're actually supposed to see allusions here. That the ministry of Peter and the apostles here is actually continuing the work of Jesus. Uh, It's interesting, earlier in the chapter, Saul is persecuting the church. Yet in verse 4, Jesus is able to say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is, the persecution of the church is the persecution of Jesus. And likewise, as we finish this chapter, the ministry of the apostles is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. And we finish with this odd little detail. Verse 43. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Now it's worth asking, why does Luke note this? When Peter goes to Ananias, Luke doesn't tell us who he stayed with. Why is it significant that we have to know that he stays with a tanner named Simon? Uh, Well, I learned a few things about tanners this week. One, they're leather makers. But two, they were despised. Why? 
Well, firstly, it's because they stunk. Uh, they stunk so much that they had to live three miles out of town. In fact, what I learned this week was that in society back then, a woman couldn't divorce her husband. But there was one exception. If her husband was a tanner, and she didn't realize how much he stunk. But not only did he stink, in Jewish society, if he dealt with death, and if he dealt with a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean. And a tanner, they dealt with dead bodies from Monday to Friday. They were constantly unclean. And so for Peter to go to the house of a tanner, it's, it's unheard of. That is, we're being prepared for the big breakthrough that will happen in chapter 10. The gospel is going out to the unclean here. And we're being prepared for when this Jewish sect will become a worldwide religion. For the breakthrough when salvation goes out to the world and to the Gentiles. And we here at Marsfield are the fruit of that. For the gospel from going from Jerusalem to the world has even come here to Australia. Even to a place like Marsfield. It's reached even to a place where I think no Sydney sider ever thinks of or cares of, to be honest. Even to a place like cold Canberra. It's a breakthrough that salvation has reached even me and you. It changed Elaine's life that we heard earlier. It's changed the life of this student called Zem. Uh, He's an international student we met who had never heard of Jesus, who came from China. One week we gave him Mark's gospel. Next week I asked him how he found it. Turned out he had read the whole thing. And when I saw him next, he had read the Gospel of John and Romans, and a few weeks later, he realized his life needed to change because he had met Jesus. And so it is worth asking this morning. Many of you have followed Jesus for many, many years, but it's always worth asking. Has Jesus changed your life? The most significant thing about the conversion of Paul isn't so much that Western civilization has changed, but it's actually that the good news of Jesus has reached us. It's that me and you can move from hell to heaven. And things like positive psychology, they're like putting a bucket under a leaking roof. That is, there's good things about it it will make you feel more optimistic about what's happening around you. But it does ignore the fundamental problem, which, like Saul, is that we need Jesus, that none of us are good enough, that we need the forgiveness that Jesus offers. You see, this chapter is unique to Saul. We most likely won't see a blinding light, and his conversion has a unique place in God's plans and purposes. But seeing Jesus, seeing his implications for our life, well, that has implications for everyone. And so it's worth asking, have you turned to Jesus? Doesn't matter what you've done, 
It doesn't matter how long you've been around church for. It's never too late. You're never too evil. For if Jesus can save Saul, then he can save me and you as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for how you changed Saul and his life. How he met you and took the gospel out to the world. And so as we hear about the good news of Jesus, do that work in our life so that our life is not lived for me and for ourselves, but live utterly independence of you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.